everyone. Welcome to BYOB Pod. Uh, absolute pleasure to be with you as always. We've got a great film for you this week. Uh, some exciting stuff to get into as well. Lots of your comments to talk through. In the presence of film greatness, Jack Hussey. How are <laughs> I you? Wish. I wish. <laughs> Not yet, mate. I've, I've nearly got that first screenplay done and then uh, we'll see. We'll take it from there. Have you have you got anything that you can uh, one day we'll, we'll be able to share on here writing-wise? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wrote a short film last year that I, I, I would not mind getting made. I um, think you should get it made. I think it's really cool. That's no, up. Thanks. You are you, you are watch- contractually obliged to say that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> and then and then, <laughs> then I'll give it a scathing review yeah. on here. <laughs> it's gonna be it's gonna be like that thing, isn't it? Because we were talking about this off air that Komodo Mayo had Daniel Kalua on their pod this week. And it felt like they went softer on the film, right? As a result of that, I wonder if that does play in. Um, oh, mate, I reviewing something. I, I can give. Do you, I know I always go back to this, but when I was doing the junkety stuff before, and you'd go and see the showing of the film in the morning, you go to the screening of the film in the morning, and then you would get ushered into. If you've ever seen Notting Hill, for people that don't know, if you've ever seen Notting Hill, there's a scene where Hugh Grant gets whisked through the cast to do like 10 five minute interviews and he hasn't seen the film so he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about um uh <laughs> I, I won't i'll do a horrible job of imitating it now but essentially you you kind of go through and you have five minutes with different bits of the cast and you always find yourself saying well congratulations on the film it's it's, it's fantastic and you're like why did I just say it's fantastic? It's one of the worst pieces of shit I've ever seen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, unless it's actually really good. Well, because I went to the Dunkirk one and that was like really cool. That was just really cool. Cause you met like, Nolan, right? You interviewed yeah, Nolan. That was amazing. Mate. Absolutely bricked Gold. it going in there. Cause he just, he sits like, I don't know how to describe it. He sits as if the room is, entirely in his possession he's sort of he's, he's so annoyingly smart though isn't he the way he makes his points the way he comes across he's just he's like startlingly insightful and erudite and i'm just i watch him i'm i listen back to myself on this and i'm kind of sort of banging the table but he do you know what's amazing about him he has a really soft quiet voice yet you can't imagine anyone ever interrupting him. Mm. Never needs to raise it. Just kind of like, just gently, just the words caressing out of his mouth. Just people like so that. Calm. Right? How how scary is it when they are actually cross of you? Yeah, so I'm, so I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah. He's. Do you know what this is? This brings us on perfectly. I was going to ask you this before, but I didn't get a chance. I feel like maybe we need to do a little 10 minute pod with our Oscar predictions. Yeah. Because I think, I think by the time that this pod comes out, the Oscars are announced. We're recording this just before the Oscar noms are announced. But Jack's Mrs. Shah sent a really cool thing this week, which just absolutely, I mean, we, we might have to share it off the, of the BYOB accounts. It basically has got like a mathematical breakdown of who can expect to be in with a shout of winning. Um, and it, I, I, I know it's all nonsense. I know it's all farcical and ridiculous and it doesn't mean anything, but what, I don't know what it is inside of us all 
it's just so exciting. The idea of who will be in, who will be crowned as like yeah. the best, even though it's totally subjective. It's uh, it, it is ridiculous, isn't it? Because I do have that bit where I'm like, "Ooh, it's just a popularity contest," but then you're still like, "But I want whoever." I want win. that one to win. <laughs> it's I not really quite want at the level. To win. You know how there's like all these different podcast awards now, and it's just people being like, "Vote for my podcast." Yeah, no, me thanks. podcast with loads of listeners. Vote for us, and you're kind of like, "It's not really." Right. You know what I mean. Yes. But but that's why the that Chris Nolan thing that you brought up the other week was so fascinating because he was actually like no I I really want critique from people that I care about their opinion. It's such a passag thing to say though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, I want value criticism. It's that type. I'll of... take it from. Do you know what it is? It's a glorified version of when this is a bit of a football reference. When John Terry sort of was doing a press conference and said, "I'll take criticism from your Rio Ferdinands, your Gary Nevilles, and your Frank Lampards." Robbie Savage, no thanks. <laughs> 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 which is just such an absolute barb. Um, we, we, we got a couple of very interesting comments this week, which we can fire through quickly. Um, firstly, on the films of 2023 pod that we put out, Lewis McCann said past lives was mid, sadly. Mid. Lewis, what, what I, whatever you're smoking, send some this way, because that's some hallucinogenic bollocks. What, how is past lives mid? Lewis, were you were you watching it on your phone as you were also watching the Sidemen? <laughs> your, why, why, why do I feel like you're just taking shots at Purdy? <laughs> playing, playing Fortnite on your PS5 at the same time. Do you know what I mean? Right. right. You can't you can't be calling a film like you can not like a film like Past Lives, but to call it mids, nah. Well, okay, let me ask you this then. What is it about past lives that people... Because I get I'm totally biased on this. It captured me and moved me in a way that I just... It, it, it stayed with me for ages. Why would people not like this film, do you think? I think part of the reason why we liked it so much, mate, is because we're the same age as the protagonists. Right, okay. Um, I think we're probably at a similar point in our lives where we have a there's a certain sort of reflective quality within the within the medium right that you can draw from that you can see your own sort of personal experiences and such in there and uh, like jokes aside and everything i think if you are probably younger or further back on the journey i think i think the film still does have a universality to it don't get me wrong but in terms of like why if we're asking why like the likes of you or i connected with it so much um, I think is that another example um, of something like this in the zeitgeist at the moment that we spoke about extensively this year and loved was beef. Um, yeah. Beef, which yeah. really captured that kind of millennial ennui, the wow, we were lied to, we're the adults now and this isn't what we were promised quality yeah. to it. Um, Do you think, that, you know, this week seeing the Golden Globes and everything, did it bring back to you just how good beef was? Oh yeah, it's, I, I was saying, to you, I want to rewatch it again soon. Yeah, because it, it's fantastic. It, I really, such a clever premise, isn't it's, it? It's also made me think because I saw some people being like, "Oh, come on, beef season two, beef season two. I'm like, "Nah, man, like leave it where Don't it is." Don't touch it. Yeah. Don't like, touch it. No perfect. need. 
I watched again the other. I watched the kind of like final sequence again the other day, and I'd forgotten how perfect it was. Mm. To do that is 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 so rare to mm. do that to just end something perfectly and then go and Finn, you know, mm. fade to mm. black and we all just walk away like that's it. Never happens. Never happens. I did feel a bit bad for Pedro Pascal in The Last of Us though, because I genuinely think The Last of Us was one of the finest bits of media that I've yeah, ever seen. Good. Particularly the 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 is it Frank and Bill? Yeah, want to say episode? Yeah. I know I always go on about that, but I I really believe you could watch that episode in isolation, the, and it would stand up. There's some really I liked Kieran Culkin and uh, Pedro Pascal's little dynamic as well. Oh, that, that's really cool, isn't it? When he was second Pedro. <laughs> yeah, but then the week after, when Pascal went on with the broken arm, he's like, "Yep, Kieran Culkin uh, <laughs> kicked my ass." Yep. <laughs> He's such a star, isn't he? Such a star. Um, right, I've taken that off in a, in a weird direction. We got a couple of comments on um, the Kill Bill episode, which is very interesting, uh, where we were talking in particular about Uma Thurman being in the car um, doing a stunt that essentially really she shouldn't have been doing. and She'd raised flags and raised concerns that she wasn't comfortable. Now, firstly, Mark Rodriguez, 1750 original, said... Exactly what we need. Some Brits talking about our movies. You can't. <laughs> God. God. You can't have. You can't have the whole make America great again. You can't talk about our movies. That doesn't work. Like, that's just not a thing. You um, can't really when it's your biggest sort of export other than drone warfare. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, we got another comment that, <laughs> from a really interesting username which I'm going to read out it says it's really strange that he didn't use uh, a stunt driver for the scene seeing how the camera is recording the back of her head <laughs> to be honest Uma should have insisted on stunt driver 2 knowing her face wasn't being she recorded she was yeah um, and then the Volkswagen Carmen gears notoriously squirrely they put an actor behind the wheel Balls to the wall on a dirt road, like dirt road lined with trees. It, I mean, the one, a couple of other comments sort of flagged this. As far as we are aware, she really tried to raise this, right? Mm. That's and what I, more research suggested. That's why she was particularly kind of pissed off of it. That she was just like, "Can you fucking shut up?" <laughs> TikTok. I was on TikTok beforehand trying to look at the comments that we've had on uh, on our various sort of videos and stuff to draw. Yeah, but that, but there. you've been like clearly going down like World War Two TikTok threads. Like, <laughs> what has taken you back to that piece of no, music? It was just you know how it just pops up with a randomly selected video <laughs> on the. It's the, not what um, it looks like. It's not what it looks yeah. like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate, I know I'm completely in the mood for the Glenn, Billa, Glenn Miller band, though. Don't get me wrong, at all times. Always. Absolute um, banger. But, there were, yeah, there was a couple of people that flagged this. And there was one other thing that I read today around this, that um, that the stunt crew hadn't been notified to be on set. What? which is really, really interesting. I didn't know that last week. So that was an interesting little turn up that they basically had kind of been kept out of it, perhaps because they were flagging or would have flagged that it wasn't something that would fly. So it is interesting, isn't it? That whole idea that you... It feels a little you... bit dodgy, doesn't it? It feels a little yeah. bit dodgy. Grubby the, little the, the problem is, right, people are always like, now 
you just you know what the internet's like and uh i mean we're probably stoking it aren't we by by putting out these little clips but people, <laughs> people are always immediately going to think that oh we're just saying this to be like oh leave it like the context is this is a section from a podcast where we've literally spent nearly two hours saying i love this film i love quentin tarantino this is amazing and in isolation it looks like look at these two guys trying to bring down <laughs> bill bill and tarantino because they want to be woke and all that type of thing it's like just shut up man like open your minds like have a bit <laughs> allow a bit of fucking conversation to be had not everything needs to be so fucking polarized all the time sorry <laughs> ran over but you know what i'm saying just name that barbie shit like, <laughs> We're always going to go back to that. Man. That was the first one, wasn't it? That was the first one that really was like, all right, fucking hell. Just had an opinion on something. Which just is so, <laughs> the, the thing is, it's so funny as well, is it? Like, it just shows you how base, like, it doesn't matter, like, what generate. This is why I always think, really, like, I joke about it. The whole, like, millennials say this, boomers say this, Gen Z say this. Some people are dicks and some people are <laughs> And that's usually the line, right? Like, you know, it, it, we don't need to have these kind of intergenerational kind of these type of people say this and those people say that. Like, people are dicks and people aren't, right? I've just said, let's not polarise everything. <laughs> and I've broken the whole world down into a massive binary. But, you know. Oh, very good. Excellent. Um so that that was it. if you do have any other thoughts on Kill Bill, um, send them my way. <laughs> Love to hear them. <laughs> any other thoughts on Barbie or the, yeah. the global woke agenda that we're stoking? Please, we, please be our guest. We, we'll um, yeah, our we'll certainly to the test. <laughs> <laughs> be, uh, uh, I'm very keen to hear some more some more barbs sent our way. So do please send them in. Um, Onwards. Now, first question. No mm, cinema yeah. for you this week? No cinema for me this week. I've failed. I've let the side down. But I'm very much looking forward to it. And I will make a big point this weekend of going to watch all of us strangers. Um, Paul Mescal, Andrew Scott. Andrew Scott, who I, I just I love. I'm glad to see him getting like a big, big kind of big role mm. in a film. Mm. Um, Paul Mescal is absolutely going to dominate this generation isn't he really i think he's he's like the leading the so leading i have, guy. yeah i have a question for you on this mm. do you think paul mescal has reached the point now where when you see his name attributed to a film you think i'm going to that yeah i think it's, it's he he now is he's that kind of uh he's got that quality to it where you're like it's gonna be a good film you know or a good tv show yeah but he seems to be either advised very well or he makes very good decisions on what he should be in because I don't really think he's, has he been in a stinker? I'm not so sure. Or apparently, apparently this new film, I say that, apparently he's in a film at the moment called Foe. Um, Paul Mescal and Sauce, Sasha? Sasha, isn't it? Sasha Ronan. Sasha Ronan, yeah. Yeah, um, called Foe. Apparently it's it's not very good. So, anyway, oh, but then... But then he's also going to be a gladiator too, as well. And I'm panicky about that. Let's just let's just not let's just leave that for you know. Okay, we can. But that's sort of like one we can just predict. It's, it's too big to look at at the moment. We can mm. just ignore it mm. for the ignore it for the future. So we have Mean Girls to get to go and see. We've got um, anyone but you to get to go and see. We've got 
Um, there's one other, isn't there? Well, there's Priscilla. Well. Maybe because Jack, friend of the show, Jack Gallagher's actually seen Priscilla. Maybe we can ask him to do as a recording. Should we get those sending? Yeah, get those sending from Jack G. Priscilla, yeah. I'd, I'd be really interested to see that. Um, and then all of us strangers will both try and get out to see this week. So one that I've seen this week, not at the cinema, but is on Netflix. And so it's, it's, it's kind of like a, I don't know what the right wording would be, but in terms of the film landscape, I would call this low-hanging fruit in terms of I can chuck this on, I can give it a watch, give it a blast, and it will take two hours and it's a nice evening. You know, if you're at a mm. loose end on a kind of Thursday night, you don't fancy going out, you're, you've hit the end of dry January and you're getting a bit like, oh, I want to go for a beer, but one last week, what should we do this evening? Okay, we'll put a film on. This is a really good one to chuck on. Um, it It essentially is... So firstly, directed by uh, Kibwe Tavares and Daniel Kaluuya. Lots of people will know Daniel Kaluuya from his acting as well, but he, I believe he was across the screenplay for this. So written by him and then directed by him as well. Goes deep in terms of themes, goes deep into the idea of class and perhaps how we're all sleepwalking at the moment towards a really, really dangerous place with a class system that's almost like a dog whistle class system because we all we all see how the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer but beneath that perhaps more sinister and more dark um things that are at play in terms of how we'll see the world look in 20 30 years time and it's tough to tell when this film is actually set but it's in a not too distant future where um, gentrification has absolutely battered England. And this is set in one of the last estates in London that has essentially grown upwards from the ground. It's so, it's super densely populated, but it's just got taller and taller and taller uh, and more and more cramped and more and more people living in horrible conditions with nowhere else to go. Um, and it basically is an examination into identity and the idea of wanting to try and escape your own situation while still wanting to be true to the roots of where you come from and the people around you and the culture around you that you're proud of and the heritage that you're proud of as well. Um, in terms of the things to like in this, Kano, Kane Robinson, absolutely brilliant. I really rate him. Uh, did you rate him? Did you enjoy him in um, uh, in Top Boy? I do. Yeah, I do. I do think he's 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 very good. He's um, as for like the sort of for the hard man character, Solly, isn't he? he plays in in Top Solly, Boy. Yeah, yeah. He's got a um, a real sort of tenderness to him. I think he developed a lot as an actor as the seasons went on as well. Um, mm. But yeah, I, I I I did like him. I was, I was actually quite surprised by how much I did like him in uh, in Top Boy. One thing that jumped out at me in this film, he smiles like three or four times. And I was like, I don't think I've seen you smile no, before. No. I was trying to think. I was like, have you ever seen it? it I, I've seen him smile in interviews and chat and interviews, but in terms of his acting, I don't think I've ever seen him have a kind of like an, an affectionate interaction with someone where he's warm. Because Sully as a character in Top Boy was always very cold and always very ruthless and, and didn't want to show any vulnerability. And that was kind of one of the joys of the character um, alongside Duchesne. But in this, it made me, it just like, 
this is sounds super wet, but he has got the most wonderful smile. He's got a real kind of, it, 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 he can flicker in his face and he, his smile just lights up the screen. You're suddenly like, wow, this guy, like, he's got a lot of range and you just didn't necessarily get to see it in the same way. I thought he was phenomenal in Top Boy. It just, you saw a side of him. So I was kind of thinking off the back of this, I'd love to see him do something totally different and do something that really, really extended him in a totally different way. I mean, each to their own, right? Everyone wants to, has got their own ambitions and um, ambitions and things to do. But I just thought he was very, very good in this. Um, the, 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 the young person that he plays alongside is uh, Jediah Bannerman. Really good as well. Very, very expressive face. Goes for a real range of emotions in this. He's very, very strong. Things that you possibly won't like in this. We spoke about in Poor Things, the idea of using smart stages and LED stages to try and make it so that not everything is CGI and so that some things can feel a little bit more real, even when they're sort of ethereal and uh, futuristic. This probably falls into a couple of the traps of CGI being a little bit cheaper nowadays. So it has a kind of like London cityscape, but it's very, very computer gend really? and it, lots of kind of looking like Blade Runner, but a daytime, mm. lots of the kind of, um, lots of the colorways that you would expect to see your futuristic stuff. And that's not, I'm not, that's not a major hang up for me. It's just you and I, I think we've kind of set our stall out on this. I feel like we've been fairly consistent for 42 episodes now that if you can do it practically, that's usually better. Um, I'm a little bit torn on Ian Wright because... Oh, yeah, you told me that. You told me that. That's, it feels a bit weird, that. It's a strange one. So Ian Wright basically almost plays the voice of God. Is in, he in any in way this. a comedic character? Kind of. Kind of. He is... The, I would liken him to maybe, um, do you know when you go, if you ever go and watch the football, mm. you'll have the guy that says, and the starting lineup for blah, blah, blah today is number one. Da, da, da. And you might not ever see that person's face, but they're just the voice that's the thread running through everything. And they, they kind of, they're keeping things ticking. And yeah. they're almost the, the, the base or the rhythm of the of the film. He basically is this kind of all seeing. He has the tallest flat in the in the estate, so he kind of overlooks the whole estate. And he's kind of like the the leader of the band, almost in the sense that he's keeping everyone going, keeping everyone together. And he is brilliant. I mean, it's Ian Wright being Ian Wright and having a lot of fun and having a laugh. And he is very very good here. The thing that jars with me is that I know it's Ian Wright. Mm. So I'm like, that's Ian Wright. <laughs> you know, I can't get it. You can't get it out of your head. You, you sort of, even though he's very, very good, I think in my mind, I'm like, I'm just watching Ian Wright do Ian Wright in a film as opposed to being a, a different character. But fair play to him for actually having a crack. I mean, how many people do that in their lives? You know, I mean, you've got Vinnie Jones as a good example, but not many will go and say, I'll just do something completely different and I'll give it a, give it a go. Do you know what? I, I, despite my sort of skepticism, I guess like you've made a good case there that Ian Wright, like he's kind of fallen into that category of like, he gets a, he can do what he wants really now. Can't yeah, he? 100%. Like, 
He's, he's at that point for me. And it's, it's it's so painful to say, even as a Spurs it's not actually at all bollocks. I'm not going to do all that stupid tub thumping stuff. Good like, guy. Good he guy. seems like a good bloke. Support, he's supported the women's game for years. He just seems like a, a, a top guy. And you actually see a lot of Spurs fans all say, I can't hate him, right? I just yeah. can't, you know. You can't, he's just too much of a nice guy. And yeah. he just, he, he, and he comes across in this, as you would expect him to, just really good good fun um and it, yeah it, i'm so impressed with him for sort of like doing something different and giving something else a go when it's so easy just to go and do the same things over and over and over again and get paid an awful lot of money but as you rightly say he is just seems like a very good man um would so you, in- uh, do you reckon the film would have benefited at all from a cinematic from cinematic run great question but no i i mm, actually don't I, I i don't think this is a cinema film um, I think it's an interesting film and I think it's a good watch and I think it raises some really good talking points. It has a right good rummage around in, in, in a lot of talking points. One of the other major pluses that this film does for me is it takes on the idea of the, the kind of class struggles that exist within London and shows a group of people that are really really struggling in terms of their socioeconomic position the fact that they're living in relative poverty struggling to eat struggling to get water um at no point does it ever um even begin to vilify the people within that community uh it doesn't you know in top boy you would often be faced with the idea that there are two baddies, but they're also goodies. You know, yeah, they're, yeah, even yeah. Though they're doing bad things. They're not fundamentally bad people. What this film is really clear to do, it doesn't vilify people for their situation. And it's not like the, the, the groups of, of young people within it are all drug runners. These are just young people that are trying to survive and get by. So it does that really, really well. But what I would say, because of the way that it kind of looks, I think it will benefit more from being on Netflix. And I think it'll find a, a bigger audience there. Mm. I, for me, it's like a, a three popcorns on the popcornometer. Nice sting in the tail at the end. But I, I would say very much watch it like Thursday night film, very chill. Can, can I, because I, I thought from the trailer, and I, I say this as constructively as I can. I don't mean this as like a massive insult. I just mean this in the, like you're talking about it being a bit Netflixy. It did have a bit of a um, Harlan Coben series type feel to it. Do you know what I mean a, when I, I say that? Very, like, yeah, very astute kind of, uh, even to pick that from the trailer, it it, it feels that way. It, it, where like you're saying you're like this isn't bad it's just not that good and it's, it's fairly entertaining so yeah whatever and so, but but i don't think there was been there's been a little bit of discussion recently about how hard it is to get films made that are in the mid-tier budget wise yep. so i think this could have been one of those films that you could go up slightly in budget and you could make it feel a little bit more gritty mm. um because uh, again, I think I have a natural aversion to CGI. I have a natural aversion to just kind of uh, when it feels too far otherworldly. That's part of the reason. Look, Blade Runner is an unfair comparison, and Blade Runner twenty forty nine is an unfair comparison. But when you when you look at the 
painstaking detail that they went to within that to make it feel real, even though it's otherworldly. When you then do things on computers very quickly, it can feel quite, I don't know that jarring is the correct word, but it can certainly take you out of a of a film quite quickly. You go, oh, okay, well, this isn't real, you know, but there was some really, really great stuff in there as well. Anything that was shot within the confines of, of, like the flat that they occupy, for example, or the estate that they occupy at ground level felt far more earthy and far more real. And, and that was, the for me, the best part of the film. But, yeah, it w- worth a watch. Um, and, yeah, it, low-hanging fruit in terms of the fact that it's on on Netflix as well. Um, th- that is it on in terms of the films of this week. I am delighted to ask this question. Mm. Jack, what did you pick? And why did you pick it? And why is it one of the greatest films of all time? <laughs> I chose Ooh. Lost in Translation, Sophie Coppola's Lost in Translation. And I chose it because it's a film I hadn't seen for some years. And I thought it would just be an interesting one to revisit. I thought given our, our pace thus far of 2024 has been high octane, to say the least, we could bring it down a notch and have you know mellow in the in the whiskey enthused vibes of lost in translation um i don't know if i'd call it one of the best films of all time um but i do like it a lot i love it man i love it i love it i love it i love it and i it did when you picked it or when you were thinking about it is there any part of you that was like I'm going to have to sort of be ready to go into this film. Yeah. And it, it's funny because we were talking about past lives at the start, right? And uh, how we can sort of vibe with that a lot better now because of our ages and such. I do actually remember the first time I watched Lost in Translation. I would say it was probably just before I went to university. I think it came out. Um, and I watched it and I seem to recall really liking it because it was a bit of a kind of like, you know, Sophia Coppola was, for want of a better expression, it's very like hipstery, very art house. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is. Definitely. Yeah, it's very cool. And this was kind of at a time when I was probably a lot more self-conscious, a lot more like I have to be cool and I have to like certain things and whatever. Um, and so I remember like watching the film and being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so great. It's so great. <laughs> Cause it kind of looked cool. And like, you've got like Scarlett Johansson in the pink wig and you got Bill Murray kind of doing a straight turn, um, all that type of thing. And you're like, it all just sort of came together. It looked cool. Tokyo is fucking cool. And deep down in the deep recesses of my soul, though, I remember watching it being like, I don't, I don't really get it. I don't really get what's going on this is kind of cool, but also kind of weird. Why is this like a love story between like an old guy and this young girl? I don't really get it. And like the older and older I've gotten, this isn't me saying I'm going to have a love affair with a 17 year old girl. <laughs> but what I am saying is, is like a lot of the themes there, I guess from, from both of them. And I think having a bit more lived experience myself, just in general, having lived in another country for a while, where I was surrounded by people that I couldn't speak their language, even though like one of the themes in this film, I don't want to jump too far ahead, is that you're kind of you're a stranger in a place that looks oddly familiar but just isn't quite, right? Tokyo, similar vibes to New York, similar to London, but also is its own thing. But 
you can't read any of the shop signs. You can't really understand what people are saying in passing, so on and so forth. Um, and so I think now, like watching it as a sort of, you know, someone in my late 30s now, there's a lot in there that I can um, I can take from it. I did watch it. I've, yeah, I've watched it probably a couple of times since I watched it when I was first, you know, when I first watched it as a teenager, probably watched it in my 20s. And then I think I have watched it in my early 30s. And I think I probably take something a little more from it each time. Um, oddly enough kind of at this age I think I am mostly I think this is I think it's being this age now where I have the biggest um, I don't don't really know how to put it but like touch points just the the age gap stuff I do find like the weirdest because the older you get the older I get as a man you kind of think about like getting involved in, with somebody that young and you're just like, I don't, I don't, it doesn't compute for me that I don't understand it. It is weird. Like it is, yeah. people have always made excuses to this type of thing, but it is well weird. Um, I guess I'm jumping way ahead though. So I'm going to chuck to you first, mate, before I do continue to ruin this film myself, I'm going to ask you to spoil this film in 60 I- seconds ready how does I'm, that sound to you so, i'm so ready because so I, I love this film you good at this one i i hope so i really want to be oh god that sounded that almost sounded quite sad ben i really well, i just don't want to be good enough I, oh, I love the film like if i can't do this one i'd be absolutely raging <laughs> all right I, i'm gonna give you a countdown now okay go so, on hit me i'm gonna start on a five then it's gonna go four three two one Okay, so Lost in Translation follows Scarlett Johansson's Charlotte and Bill Murray's Bob. They're both in Japan, uh, but both for very, very different reasons. They're staying in the same hotel. Scarlett Johansson's character is there with her incredibly famous and successful photographer husband. Bill Murray is there shooting a whiskey advert for an obscene amount of money. He's a bit of a washed up actor um, and he's reaching the end of his career. Both of them feel very lost very isolated and very alien in this totally different culture where they don't recognize anything and can't speak the language. And even though they don't necessarily have a physical attraction to each other, because of their combined situation, they have a kind of mutual connection that grows over the course of the film. And essentially the film is trying to work out whether they can discover who they want to be by the time that they will inevitably have to leave because we know that there's an end point to their relationship when they leave the country again. Oh, bang on. One minute. That was sublime. Well done. Sublime. Well done, son. (laughs) I went a bit Chris Tarrant there, didn't I? um, In Barbie, that moment where Ryan Gosling walks off screen and then just shouts, sublime! (laughs) 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 I think that was the best bit of it for me it really really tickled me I like it when he puts the sunglasses over the pair of sunglasses <laughs> that's, oh that's, man Barbie was, was my, good uh, deep, it was good uh, my deep watching of Barbie it, it, it was a it was a good film that one I, I, I must revisit that because I think I kind of if I'm if I'm honest I think I enjoyed Oppenheimer so much and I sort of was like ooh Oppenheimer is such high art that like I gave Oppenheimer more of a, oh, watch that again. I need mm. to go back and watch Barbie and, and give it another go. Anyway, Lost in Translation. You mentioned uh, Sofia Coppola, 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 um, uh, first and foremost. Now, 
for people that don't know, I feel like maybe you could give a little a little background into why she might be on some level be considered a, a Nepo, Nepo baby. Nepo baby. I was wondering if that's where you were going with that one. Well, I I, I shan't dally too much into it because I do, <laughs> I do think she's incredibly skilled, incredibly talented, but I think it's probably important for the discussion, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this is where the kind of the discussion about Nepo babies and such always gets a bit difficult, doesn't it? Because I'm sure you have friends i have friends who have very wealthy very successful parents in whatever industry who do all that they can to give said friend a leg up in life uh, exert that privilege over the rest of us and said friend doesn't use it sits around on their lazy ass and doesn't do anything with it right (laughs) But some people get the door open for them. And that is invariably what's happened for Sofia Coppola, her father being, you know, widely regarded as having made one of, if not the greatest films of all time in The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two. for anyone that really wasn't aware. Um, She has had the door open for her, but she's like gone into the room this metaphorical room that the door has been opened. I love where we're going here. (laughs) And like really kind of fucking bossed it, right? She's going to right and rummage around. Yeah, she's like fucking rearranged shit. She's whatever. I don't know. This (laughs) metaphor is getting strained. She's done, she's she's been great. She's a great director of her own merit. Um, And I think this... I think she's done a number of music videos. I want to say this was her first feature. I think this might no, have been her second feature. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Second feature, this one, I think. Um, but uh, b- b- this film, I mean, she. I think she does say in interviews that she, she got her... She wrote it as well, by the way. Yeah, and she won, she won the Oscar for screenplay for this nice yeah so this um this film even though she had no doubt an incredible platform to build from this is very much her thing but must be quite cool when you've got a first draft and you're like dad director of the godfather (laughs) any chance you could have a watch (laughs) imagine that could you just critique my homework greatest film director of all time <laughs> greatest film director of all time that has a vested interest in me succeeding as well <laughs> do you know what i mean feels no yes. real sense of competition unless they're kind of weird then you know maybe they yeah, might which, not yeah. like their children outshining but i think when you've made the godfather and the godfather part two you're probably fairly comfortable with you've, whatever anyone can bring at you right you're good you're all right you can yeah. chill yeah, I mean, but this, I, I want to be clear actually with, with this because this is by, this is her, she wrote the screenplay. She, I've watched so much this week around this film and read so much around this film. This is very much her thing. I don't want for a second people to think that I'm suggesting this is not, not hers in every single bit of it. Um, and a really cool starting point on this one, she wanted to, create a film the starting point for the film was tokyo it wasn't a love story 
Interesting. It was, I'm going to make a film about Tokyo because she lived there for a little while. Um, and then the next point was that she wanted Bill Murray to be the lead character, which is kind of incredible, really, that you would have that, um, that would kind of, that chutzpah, I guess, to be like, no, I'm going to do my sort of first really, really big film. I'm going to do it in Tokyo and I'm going to get Bill Murray to star in it. Yeah. It's pretty impressive going. Um, but I think this says a lot about her as well, because filming in Tokyo is almost impossible and doing it on the budget that she did as well. The, the, the budget was next to nothing. It was so, so low. So even if there was elements of kind of like, do you know who my dad is? It, 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 it's just magnificent. That she managed to make it happen. Um, and also there's this cool stuff about her relationship with Spike Jones as well. Um, that she would basically, the story was, it was kind of her story in that she was going through the end of a relationship with her partner, who's also a filmmaker. Um, and he actually ended up going on to create the film Her, which a lot of people see as a bit of a response to this. See, do you know what? Because I didn't know that until you told me that this week. And it makes total sense, though. And Doesn't it? Because there's, there is, there's, there's a real kind of like, there's an echo, isn't there, in, in Her of this film? Um, even just stylistically, the kind of pacing of them, the look and feel of them, if you like. I know her is set in a near future, um, in a slightly sort of utopian future, really, as opposed to a dystopian one for once, um, that you can definitely feel there is a thread. Let's, let's put it that way. And yeah, it just it made complete sense to me after you told me that. I wasn't thinking, nah, nah, nonsense. You know. Well, there is that. There's that line. I can't remember what it is in the film. Her, if you haven't seen her, sorry for the spoiler, but where I forget what the name of the the kind of character that is essentially Siri, but um, your partner says, "Oh, I've been speaking to like ten thousand five hundred and whatever other." people not just you um and Joaquin Phoenix's character is like completely crestfallen and and sort of holds his hand to his mouth and you when you see it you're like oh I wonder what I wonder what this is saying now you know about Samantha the Siri ah Samantha that's it and it's and you can imagine if you were in a relationship with someone who was the suddenly the most popular person in the world everyone wants to speak to all the time you kind of would have that difficult you'd have that really difficult thing of like hang on how do I get just you for a bit how do I get to just be with you and then equally in this film in Lost in Translation there's clearly that there's so much you can see with Scarlett Johansson's character particularly the relationship with the her husband the photographer and that lack of attentiveness and that the only time he really kind of speaks to her is to tell her off for smoking in terms of, sort of says anything meaningful is to sort of scold her. Um, it's quite an interest, just quite an interesting thing to have those, those two dynamics. Um, mate, what did I'll just you- say one of the oh. other, just quickly, one of the other funny things about her, if you haven't seen it is it's got a chubby Chris Pratt in it. 
He's got chubby yes. Chris Pratt when he was actually a funny and endearing kind of actor as opposed to this sort of chiseled wannabe alpha dude that he's kind of turned into. Yeah, is that mad? Yeah. Like he was a bit of a no, like not nobody, but he was kind of a bit sort of like, you wouldn't think of him as, oh my God, there goes that absolutely ripped up gorgeous Adonis. No, he was like the fat funny guy. <laughs> but he was so right like that was kind of his his place in, in things yeah and then he kind of just got all ripped and then he got wham and he seems hang like on. a robber i'm not gonna lie I, I, I don't like his energy am i right in saying that he was married to anna friel he was married to anna friel, who's in then. this yeah there you go oh that's wild i wonder if that was intentional as well I, um, maybe maybe not though i think that's probably that could be a little bit of a reach mate i wanted to go, pick your brains what did you think of or what do you think of tokyo in general are you someone that is like really taken with the idea of japan or tokyo in particular yeah i'd absolutely love to go i always have, oh really i always have really wanted to go yeah i'd love right. to go to japan um i will at some point just when I can afford it. <laughs> no, oh my God. Other side yeah. of the world vibes, isn't it? Yeah. And it's uh, such a long way to go. Yeah. I, I, I would, I would love to, um, you know, just for the, for what I see of it, basically, you know, the kind of the foods, the culture, the scenery, the sights, why you go for any place really, but, but, why you go on holiday anywhere in it, you know, but it does look different, doesn't it? Yeah. It doesn't look like anything else. It's, it feels like Japan has its own very unique setup there, which mm. I think it, it, she clearly was at pains to get across in this because a lot of it looks incredible. It looks really you, You've been, right? I've never been to Tokyo, but I've been to Osaka. Okay. Um, and the second city, is it? Probably, yeah. And... and it, Osaka has the the kind of famous thing in Osaka um, is the big running man um, LED board. It's like a man running on a running track with his arms in the air, which I think when you see it, you'll I'll send you a picture of it now. But when you see it, you'll kind of almost recognize it. And it very much that the, the center of um, the center of Osaka is is very similar to to how you might imagine Tokyo or Japan just in general. It's tons of lights, lots of different colors, really bright, different LED style colors that, that grab your attention. It's quite an assault on the senses when you're walking around. Everything's very hustle bustle. Everyone is, is, is kind of like weaving in and out, moving very quickly on in, in pedestrianized areas. Um, and you do really feel like an alien walking Co around there. Correct me if I'm wrong. Cause I, I can't remember. I know you worked on the, and I'm not going to give them any free publicity, but I know you worked on the campaign, it was filmed in Japan. Is that when you went there? Did you go there for that football game as well? Yeah, I went and went. And we were there for six days, five, six days. Okay, um, okay. so can I like, because I'm very interested here because you often hear about this. So say, for example, um, the culture in Japan, the the kind of the idea of, you know, respect, cleanliness, politeness, that type of thing. 
And I remember this being in the the sort of the documentary you were making at the time. The fans cleaning the stadiums afterwards, right? Yeah, so everyone stays this, at the end I, of the game. I don't game. know because these sort of conversations, I, I just want to say up front, I do understand, I understand about, you know, this film carries with it. A lot of people have feelings that this film is Orientalist in nature. Um, it fetishizes certain facets of Asian culture, Japanese culture in particular. Um, and so I just want to kind of say up front when I'm exploring these kind of points with you, I'm not trying to do that, right? I'm trying to get a better understanding of what your experience was like when yeah, you were out there. But but I think this that's a really good point. And I think it's really crucial that there is a distinction between the two because there are, we have totally seen over the course of time within media, within TV and, and film. And not just that, I think you could even go as far as to say kind of social media as well, the fetishization of Asian culture um, and, the, and the way in which people perhaps either display links to Asian heritage or people kind of want to you want to wear Asian heritage almost like a costume or an outfit um which is just obviously totally wrong but I I think one of the things that this film gets right at least from my point of view and I'm not for a second doubting um anyone that maybe was made uncomfortable by watching the film that felt that this actually was unfair to to Japan um when I got there, it is the first time in my life, I think that's right. I think, yeah, I think it's the first time in my life that I've got off the plane somewhere and just immediately felt like, oh, I am out of my depth. I don't know anything here. I'm completely no one. I have got no grasp of the language. I can't read any of the signs. People in Japan are, are very rightly very proud of their national identity, their culture, their language. And I would say in the same way that in, in England, people are like, well, you're in England, you speak English. A, a lot of people definitely have that belief, I would say. They're like, well, you're in England, so you speak English and you make use. And we don't necessarily make it easy for people, particularly outside of London, yeah. make it easy for people to find their way around. And so it's totally normal that you'd be in another country and you wouldn't find it easy if you don't know the language. But what I would say is that Japan was far and away the biggest culture shock that I've ever had in terms of going to another country. And I say that from a position of not by no means bragging or, or being arrogant. It just was, it just was incredible. I couldn't believe how lost at sea I felt when I got off the plane in an, in a nice way. It's a really lovely thing. You don't ever get that anymore. You know, like there's Wi-Fi everywhere. There is, um, there is McDonald's everywhere. There's, you can always, find your way around and I mean I, I was lucky enough to go to Hong Kong once and Hong Kong obviously not obviously Hong Kong formerly was like UK territory so everything there has got three-pronged plugs you get off the plane within 15 minutes you're in in the city center and there's a pizza express there you know you can go I think it was 17 hours worth of flying and you feel like you've got off the plane and you could be in a part of London Japan just isn't like that. And mm. so I think one of the things that this film does, even though 
people might have that feeling of like, hey, this is unfair the way that it's portrayed. What I think the film is doing is really, really taking you into the eyes of um, Charlotte and Bob and their what their characters feel like an experience. Not that they're judging, they just are completely out of their comfort zone and are completely culture shocked and don't know what they're doing and feel lonely and isolated. And I think that's important for the film because it provides the backdrop through which they will then strike up conversation. Yeah. I don't know if that was it, that was kind of the vibe you got or not. Well, yeah, I mean, I think we'll sort of go into this more on the fine wine or war crime, so I don't want to veer too much into this part. But I do think there's a... I do think a lot of the film is intentionally... And I don't think I'm being too kind to the writer or director, um, writer or the writer director, I should say, um, with this in that I think the film is purposefully trying to explore some of the biases and such of, of the characters, um, their own kind of, I mean, the whole film is called lost in translation, right? Um, but it's it's sort of making the point that they're lost even amongst their own people, if you like. Yeah. Um that they feel cut off from their partners, their own, you know, their husband or their wife respectively, from their from any sense of their own kind of culture or country. They're literally sort of somewhere else. But they don't really seem that asked about getting home either, really. Bill Murray kind of puts up a little bit of a kind of thing at the start but it feels like he's sort of hit with a, a, a type of ennui right that is 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 prevalent with somebody who's coming towards you would say he's in the kind of autumn of his life now the late autumn going into winter of his life definitely of his career um where he's now struggling to kind of find meaning that he's 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 had these this career as a as a movie star that has seemingly come to an end he's a bit washed up he's now in whiskey adverts scarlett hansen's character what's her name in this i forget is it. it charlotte in this let's go with that um, is it have I, have I been getting it wrong the whole time I don't know. I don't think so. I'm so bad. I've said this before. I'm so bad with character names. So bad with them. No, it's Charlotte. It is good. She Charlotte. says, "Remember when you uh, remember when you actually used to make movies and not just whiskey adverts?" You know, <laughs> it's it's kind of playing on that. It's playing on his own. What is my legacy? What does my life mean? What are all these things that I've done? What do they mean? Whereas you've got her on the complete flip side of that, going from like the spring of her life into the summer of her life. And wondering what am I going to do? What what means anything? What is my purpose? Where is my agency? I'm here halfway across the world because my husband wants to be here for his work, but what am I doing? Why am I here? I'm sort of kicking my feet, sitting around in a hotel, walking into a random flower arranging class and stuff like that. So I guess it's two people trying to make sense in an immediate sense of the world that they're currently in, but also in a larger thematic sense of the world that they live in, of of all of it, 
you know, the, the, the metaphorical idea of the world they live in, if you like. Um, so I think Tokyo, in some ways, Japan is used as a device as much as anything. It's, it's a way to show two people who are literally lost. They are floating in a sea of confusion um, and trying to gradually make sense of things. But as we see in the film, they still find pockets of joy and moments that they can grab onto that can help alleviate some of that sense of being lost, that sense of almost doom, that depression that they both find themselves in. Um, I think, and I do think that it's, it's very clever. I do think it is very clever the way in which Tokyo has been used to illustrate this with these two characters. Um, And I do fully understand this does open it up for a problematic element, which we are going to explore further as well. Yeah. And and I think there's a really clever device that she uses in that they both have phone conversations with people back home who you don't see. And there is this real sense of isolation being built out. I mean, I think the moment where Bill Murray's on the floor in his hotel room looking at samples of different shades of red for the carpets back home, and you just see him sort of like picking them up and sort of flicking them around and thinking, what am I doing with my life? Yeah. Well, when when he chucks them on the floor and he's like, there's almost like a, a quite a, you know, a very literal metaphor of him dipping his toe back into back home into the yeah. normality into the the mundanity the of yeah. existence of carpet picking of this seemingly what's hinted at loveless marriage that he now finds himself in um and it it's it's really quite harrowing isn't it yeah, and and then she has the same thing. She's like, I don't know who I'm married. And then her friend over the phone, or or, or her family member over the phone, is like, Okay, well, look, got to go. Catch up later on, you know. And it's like the these people on the other end of the phone serve to further just push them into this very very uncomfortable space. Like, no one understands me. I am completely lost. I have got no way of harnessing myself to reality. I don't actually know what my reality is. And I think that's why Tokyo is so crucial because it's very difficult, really, to think of anywhere else in the world. I mean, this film could be set anywhere and you could have the same conversations. But because it's Tokyo, the conversations are brought into this 4K, ultra clear, super sharp focus, you know, because they are so isolated that they can then start to build a relationship together because they're the only two people that in the bar that are sitting looking like could you come and have a chat to me with the exception with the exception of those two really annoying blokes at the beginning that are like bro i recognize you off the film and he's like oh for god's sake (laughs) more of this nonsense mm. you know um so no that, that like I, I, is it, that's kind of showing him as well that's putting into stark contrast this is my legacy this is it being the guy that some pissed up american tourists recognize from being in that movie that time 
All yeah, right. and he he refuses to say that he's there on business because they say, "Oh, we're here on business." He's there on business as well. Yeah, he's getting paid two million dollars to turn up and chat rubbish about a whiskey thing, but he he's like, "I'm not like you." And the reality is, he clearly is now just like everyone else. He's not a film star anymore. He's just another person. Um, I did, wonder. Did you did you find it interesting? Sorry, just to jump in again, but on this whole thing, there was um. I thought it was a very a smart device used when he's flicking through the hotel television and there's one of his own movies on there. Yeah. 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 The movie has been dubbed, but it's like he can't even really recognize himself or understand himself. One of his yeah. old movies, which has been translated and he kind of winces at it, turns it off because it, it doesn't make sense to him. Um, so this is, this is kind of like a perfect segue, actually. I have a strange thing with this film in that I don't know, God, this is going to sound awful. Mm. I don't know if she just got really, really lucky with this film. Okay. That it was just the perfect storm of everything, right place, right time, right subject matter. The perfect people. The, the per- like, I mean, yes, you can say, oh, yeah, it's luck. But then if you cast wonderful people to do yeah. the jobs that you want them to do, it's not luck. But you don't know that Scarlett Johansson at the age of 17 is going to be that good at playing opposite Bill Murray. Even though Scarlett Johansson done a, f- a few bits before, the, the kind of the dimensions required to do this role alongside a guy i don't know how how old he would have been at the time but i assume it's late 50s right to to be alongside him and nail that performance like i said they had so little money to spend and filming in japan it, it is almost impossible they were doing all of these scenes and they were kind of i've watched a load of behind the scenes stuff where They've literally just filmed in the most busy spots in the middle of Tokyo. And you should never do that. Like, you should never be able to do that, I mean. It's just impossible. I remember when we went and tried to film places, like there was so much in Japan, there's so much around um, hierarchy and uh, process and the idea of getting permission. Watching the behind the scenes stuff, it looked like she just went really, really gorilla. Like she just kind of took her chances and went with things and even down to that little that little bit like being on the television it it's really neatly thought out but i wonder how much of it is whether they knew it was going to be as powerful as as it was i don't know if that makes sense Mm. or if i'm just kind of what but i think sometimes you could be making stuff and think this is really good like this feels good but you can't tell until you see it laid down you go oh, wow, this is unbelievably good. Like, this yeah. is amazing. And I wonder whether to some extent this is one of those. I, I do know what you mean. There's a certain, uh, I guess maybe because it's a lower budget production, maybe it's because she was, you know, as a director herself, writer, director, you know, much younger, much earlier on in her career. You, you, you get a strange level of confidence with that, right? Um, there's, there's a certain liberated sense of not overthinking things. When yeah, you're just yeah. like, I'm going to film these cutaways and these bits because I think they look cool. You yeah, know? and they sometimes do. You, 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 sometimes as you get a bit older, you get a bit more world-weary, you get a bit more 
in your own head about stuff. You think, yeah. well, what does this mean? Why am I filming this? What yes, is yes, here? yeah. And, and, and sometimes like you start looking like, too deep. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is it. In a nutshell, you've summed that up more, far more succinctly and, <laughs> and beautifully than I could have gotten it. But it is that. But that. But it is that. It's that idea that you just go. Well, that looks nice, so yeah. we'll have it. You know, and you just grab it, and like I, I, I suppose there's something there about fear of failure as well. You're probably not worried about failing. You're probably just in this like, oh, I want to do this thing. And seeing her talk at the time very much comes across like she had this idea. She was going to see it through and she was going to do it. And these really cool shots of Tokyo. I love Tokyo. So we'll film it in Tokyo. And she gets these shots of Tokyo and everything seems to have just like this deeper and deeper meaning, you know, and I, that's why I come back to this thing around maybe luck is the wrong word. Perhaps fortune is the right word because luck implies that anything could have happened. But I think fortune perhaps is a little closer to the idea that you could possibly be, you, you put yourself in the right place. Good things can happen. If you, if you put the right things forward and you take the shot, you could get an amazing kind of, an amazing channel. I mean, which, I watched. Which, which, I was just sorry, but I just no, I got, you know distracted there because I was trying to find how old she was when she made. She was thirty-one when she made this film. Incredible! That's yeah. so young to be making a fit like this of this kind of magnitude at this level. And she would, I think, at the time she was also set. She had a clothing company, so she was basically like half funding the film through the or funding herself through this like the fact that she was selling clothes and she was just a creative she was into photography she was um writing she was directing but she was she knew she had the freedom to go and make this because she was doing so well from the clothing stuff on the side now what is kind of like amazing with this is that there is so much depth to everything. If you if you look at, I watched the outtakes this week, or not the outtakes, but the behind the scenes of her doing the scene with um, Bill Murray where he's doing the photo shoot and the camera, the photographer, doesn't actually speak great English. So a lot of that stuff of him saying, be Roger Moore or be um, the, the Rat Pack, like it's all improvised. So it's just her saying to the photographer, say this. And then he would do his best to say whatever she had said. And yet in, in the film, when you watch it back, you're like, there's some crazy depth to this, you know, that Bill Murray is starting to just riff mm. and he's doing a, he's doing a phone call to his agent on the one hand saying, get me home by Friday. I need to come home by Friday. And on the other hand, building a rapport and a connection with the photographer, even though he's just improvising it, you know? So yeah, I mean, maybe fortuitous or, or, or maybe perhaps a little fortunate rather than lucky. But if you don't take the shot, then you're never going to get that unbelievable, incredible experience and achievement. Yeah. Can, can I say in the um in the notes the the notes before we've done this you said you've picked you picked out an interesting bit here that she had to pester Bill Murray to be a part of this film. Um, do you think that's because they felt that there were some similarities between Bill Murray the guy and the character that they wanted for this? Yeah, I think so, and I think she had like decided that it was going to be him. She was like, "I'm only doing this." 
if Bill Murray does it. Because don't you feel that this is one of those movies, and we've spoken about these before, but this feels like one of those movies where you can't really imagine anyone else other than Bill Murray no. and Scarlett Johansson in this, right? No, no. And it, that's um, like that's such a good point. Because it just feels, I don't know, I don't, I've, I've watched interviews with Bill Murray, I don't know a, a huge amount about him as a guy, but he often comes across as someone that is quite a deep thinker and it was similar to Robin Williams, always on in front of the camera, probably quite a deep thinker off it. Lots of highs and perhaps the light and the shade to go with that. Um, but that image, you know, of him just sitting on the bed. Yeah, so good, isn't it? It's well, incredible. One of them in the lift together and she's got the pink wig on leaning on his shoulder. Yeah, and I mean, I, so this is this is a good question. I wondered what like what do you think it is? You you like you said at the beginning that you watched it at different ages. Why do you think people have been all of those little bits that just draw us back into this film? Why do you think the film is so attractive to people? Because it's cool. Because <laughs> it's an escape. <laughs> Because it, it, I think ultimately it's a movie that has a level, I, I do think it's optimistic in its outlook overall on the balance of things. Um, what in the idea that you can always, it's never too late sort of thing? Not even that. I think that it's just even regardless of your circumstances, there's still pockets of joy to be had in life, right? And it's about yeah. moments. And I think that's what this film nails perfectly because what I think is so particularly brilliant about this movie is the overriding sense of it just being mundane, of it being... I think it, I think it captures, like, depression and listlessness so well. Um, that kind of feeling of things being flat, being gray, being kind of caught amongst the processes of life, of the things that you just have to go through um, before you can get to doing like the fun stuff. And then you see the fun stuff in this film and it all just unfolds so naturally, so brilliantly. And it reminds us of those nights that we've all had, those nights that aren't planned, those nights when it's like, Oh, I met a mate for a pint and then we had five pints and then we went on to a karaoke bar <laughs> and then we ended up, you know, in town somewhere and it was just a really amazing evening. That's what the yeah. sort of feeling of this film is. And then, yeah, they do all come back down to sort of earth with a bit of a thud, but they still have had those moments that are good and you know will stick with them. They're real like core core moments aren't they that they that they have in this film the two of them really share an experience at a certain crossroads in their life they've both met at the same time um albeit very different stages of their life they're both at, at crossroads um and I, I i do think i think that kind of th there is a universality to that in this film that anyone can can cling to and can enjoy from that because I think we all know that that as much as misery can be, joy can always be just around the corner, right? And that's what I think this film is making the point of that, that there is hope still for 
you just to sometimes have a day off and just enjoy life and remember that life is good and can be fun, right? Yeah, and also that those fleeting things can be suspended in time as well. Yeah. That they can just exist as moments and just because they're over a shorter period of time doesn't mean that they matter any less. I think that's one of the key key points you take from this. Like you said, you go and have one of those nights out. That's a six. If you actually think about that, you go and have a night out with a friend. You haven't seen them in forever. You have the first beer and then you think, ah, oh, it's just nice to catch up. You have the second beer and then you're like, oh, I'm starting to get, I'm starting to get a bit vibey now. I'm getting the fizz. Yeah. And then you sort of think, well, I've missed the train I was going to get anyway. And I haven't seen you in ages. Sod it. Let's grab some food. We'll have a couple more drinks. Before you know it, it's kind of like 5, 6 a.m. or whatever. You're getting a night bus home somehow. You're trying to work out how you've managed to get so hammered. And you, you end up texting in the morning to be like, what on earth? Did you make it home? Like, And that actually... If you meet at say eight PM, that's a eight hour window of your life. But you talk about that every time you see each other for f- forever, or, or or for as long as you stay friends. But, and- but even if you don't, sometimes when do you, do you, do you ever get these points when you when you go through somewhere that you remember a good night from, and you see it in a completely different setting? You see it when you're. In work, daytime. Going to a meeting, yeah, in the daytime. And it takes you back instantly to, God, that was a well good Remember night. that. Remember yeah. that. God, yeah. how crazy was that? A hundred percent. And mm. I think that's a, a big thing within this film is that these are small moments. It's a small window of time. You know that the characters have got a stop clock running against them because they're going to have to leave at some point. But it's really making this point or ramming the point home that just because they're over a shorter period of time doesn't make them any less important or any less, or the feelings that you have any less intense or real. Um, and I think that is a really clever, I mean, I, I wouldn't even know how she's managed to create that. I think it's probably because there's a lot of herself in the, the film because the experiences that she was she was having but you do get these little moments of clarity right you get the the karaoke scene where he sings more than this and sort of looking directly at her and that's really pointed and you have the feeling when when they're sat in the diner I actually really struggle with this scene but they're sat in the diner after he's slept with the singer from the bar Mm. And you you feel the disappointment that she's got in him, but the conflicting feeling because she's like, well, this isn't that's not a, they're not in a physical relationship, so why is she disappointed in him? And she really is kind of like going at him. Um, what, then you what have. Do you think that was about? Because we both spoke about that afterwards and said that we found that a bit crap. Um, <laughs> to, 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 do you know what I mean to put it bluntly? What, why, yeah. why did you feel that it was? Well, I sh- I struggle with that, and I think to be fair, I don't want to steal your thunder here, and I think this is probably a good time to do this. But I would suggest that in that bit, the film has unblurred the lines. I love the fact that the entire film lives in a grey area. 
You know, it's 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 challenging you and it's poking at you and going, what do you think of this? Are you uncomfortable because of this? But hang on, what are you actually uncomfortable about? Because mm. these are just two people that are in a, a strange place and have found some comfort in the fact that they've got someone to talk to. Why are you? What's wrong with it? Hang on, they're just chatting, you know, and then suddenly you have these very real moments. And I know, oh, I, do you know what? Let me tee you up on your one. You hated the kiss, right? I, I did. So, uh, uh, like, with the diner bit, I didn't mind that bit as much as you, purely because... I thought it kind of, it just showed, it suddenly shifted things. Suddenly things were, they got awkward because they did, you're quite right in saying they did have this relationship where there was just a blurred line. There was, it's always going to be implied, right? When, you know, a man and a woman meet each other in sort of strange circumstances that there's a kind of hint of what might happen here. But the overriding sort of feeling of the film to that point has always been maybe if anything more, it's not really paternal on his part, but more like a big brother, if you like, a kind of cool big brother. So the fact that she is put out by there suddenly being a sexuality introduced, I kind of, I kind of got it in a way because it's almost like she's sort of she's disappointed because she's maybe jealous on a certain level, but it's almost like she sort of put him as a sexual being into a box somewhere that. He didn't. He wasn't. He he didn't occupy that space for her, um, and that suddenly, when there was that hint of sexuality about him, when she knocks on his door for the usual, ha 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 ha, let's play around and do something silly in Tokyo because your wife's at home and my husband's off doing God knows what, and there's suddenly a woman there that he spent the night with. That there's almost maybe this sudden realization for her of like. God, he is this guy that wants to get laid, though. What am I doing? What is? It, 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 uh, do you know what I mean? I think it you kind of encapsulated it. this strange cocktail of feelings that they were both going through at the time. I hated the kiss, though, and I always have done. And this is one thing that's that's, that's kept me here at, at, at every single age group in which I've watched this. I hate the kiss because I think in that one action, it completely changes the dynamic of the film. It completely changes the point that the film I felt was trying to make in so much as these people have so much in common and they realize that they have so much in common, but ultimately they're at completely different stages of their life. So that really it's kind of the bittersweet irony of this whole film in that the one person that they have found a commonality with is somebody that's just wildly outside of... It just would never work. It wouldn't work and it shouldn't work for a very good reason. And I think we are going to talk about this more in Fine Wine or War Crime, but I think for the people saying that this movie's bad because it's problematic because of the age gap, I, I, I don't agree because I don't think... To this point, it's glamorized. I think the, the the whole point of the film is that they have an age gap and that it is implicitly problematic and seen as problematic throughout the whole film. So when the payoff of the movie, when the kind of happy ending, if you like, is for them to actually suddenly have a kiss as opposed to him driving off in a taxi and they've had that awkward goodbye at the hotel which is kind of fitting of these kind of scenarios 
Um, not that I've had, but do you know what I mean? When you've, when you've, I know, I know exactly what you mean. Made friends with somebody, yeah. and like, I'm never going to see life, you when, again. Yeah, do you know what yeah. I mean? When you've made friends with somebody either at an old workplace or just on a night out at a pub or something like that, and there's just that kind of, and it doesn't even need to be somebody of the opposite sex. It can be anybody, right? When you've just had a sort of moment with somebody. And it comes to an end and you have that awkward, like, God, we felt such a connection and now we're just going to disappear. And probably in a week's time, you'll just be that person that I remember that I spent those couple of weird days with in Tokyo. And I'm going to go back to being like this old actor in an unhappy life. And you're going to go back to being this sort of young college graduate who doesn't. And that, that that's kind of like, that's nice because the film unpacked all of that and it allowed them to explore from, it allowed them to escape from that reality of what their lives were and just to lose themselves in the moment of just having a bit of fun and a bit of joy together. The fact that they kiss at the end again, it just, it, I think it it did suddenly make it feel a bit seedy to me. It made it feel a bit weird. And it made me wonder what was the point of that? What was well, the point was- that you were trying to make in the film? Because you've just like, unpicked a lot of that i i don't know it just it really has never worked for me it's never chimed with me it doesn't feel like a happy ending it doesn't even feel like a bittersweet ending it just feels needless and it felt so tonally off and it's like i love this film i really do love this film but it's like just that 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 one bit to me and it comes right at the very end is like ooh, why did you have to but, do that you and know? the problem with it is that it then it's kind of like a good metaphor for uh, a lot of stuff in, in modern day. It then rewrites a lot of the film. It, it, there's, a, there's a line in the film, Scarlett Johansson says, he goes, oh, I don't want to go home. And she says, well, don't go home. Stay here with me. And when she says the line, I'm watching it and I'm thinking, that's one of those flippant, silly remarks that you make. Yeah. That you do it with a kind of like a bit of jest and a laugh and a smile ha 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 stay here with me and then someone says oh i'd love to but you know i've got to go and and it doesn't mean anything and suddenly then that kiss is like did he actually want to stay there with her and the best example i can give of this within the film talk about getting it right and getting it wrong at the same time to to have them hug and then him say something in her ear oh, and I to us, ask as you the about audience, this. Yeah. us as the audience we've got no idea what he says mm. we've got no idea so that's perfect that that has managed to elevate freezing time and leave totally ambiguous where those two people were and that's great for us as an audience because it leaves us in that really uncomfortable purgatory where, where we've been for the whole film and where we're going to remain as these two characters go off on their separate paths. We're going to stay in purgatory not knowing. For me, the kiss is too definitive. It's too ruthless. It's too yeah, clinical. Yeah. And we don't need it yeah. because th- there's so much good work that is undone by that really physical act when 99% of the film has been kind of metaphor, subtext, and kind of emotional chemistry as opposed to physical chemistry bang on sodom <laughs> oh mate oh because you did touch on something there the whisper in the ear you told me you'd done some research here. i have neeked out but now that i've just done that impassioned rant i don't know whether i should say it 
Do it. Okay. I want to know. I got so know. I watched. I've been waiting for the podcast to ask you what it is. Okay, so I watched a video where it's essentially got the atmosphere mic. So when you're filming sequences like this, I, I know everyone will know this, or vast majority of people know this, but just in case you don't, you'll often have a, a thing called a, a boom mic which is a mic that you place over the top. It's on a long, it's the microphone that you see on the big stick that someone holds and it's sort of like massive, long thing. It will always creep into shot on blooper reels and things. Yeah, and and you hang it over the top and someone's arms will be going dead because they're trying to hold this thing up. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to get the audio correct whilst also still trying to gather a sense of the atmosphere around you sometimes. And in this instance, I think they just had a mic that was just hanging there to get the atmosphere of people walking past and then very much being these two stationary people in a world that is still moving with people walking around all over them. Anyway, there's one cut that has a version of some of the dialogue that Bill Murray says. And I think the line is, I, I think he says, I believe that this is the only moment that he would have had. And he's speaking, not in character, he's speaking as Bill Murray, to tell her that he loves her. This would have been his last chance to say it. And and then she says, okay, and then hugs him. And I think, I think I'm just about okay with that, Mm. so long as they don't kiss. You know, yeah, because, because I, it's kind of like the sad old man being like, "God, my life's so shit," and I'm exactly. having this cliched midlife crisis. I've fallen in love with a seven. Well, she's about twenty two, twenty three in the film, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think she, I think she says she's twenty four. So like, she's going through the quarter life crisis. He's going through the kind of like midlife crisis. Mm-hmm, big time. Um, and and so long as they. D- I think you can just about make that work gray area wise. If you don't know whether he's like, I love what you represent. I love the fact that you are now sort of, this is it. We'll go our separate ways. Um, A lot of other people have claimed other stuff. And, and she is Sophia Coppola has said that she doesn't know what the line is that he said, but I'm sure she does. What did you think it, might be like did you have theories i just i just i do you know what i mean when i really if i think about it my gut reaction is that he's saying something to her like it'll all be all right you know that like there's a lot of this shit it doesn't get any better but it'll all be all right that kind of reassuring kind of vibe to it but um like you say again that all gets blown out again by the kiss yeah, yeah. And it kind of then really can have such a massive impact on how you view that entire end sequence. It and really is shit. The kiss really is shit. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, I, and also I think you, you nailed it with that whole thing of sometimes things just end in an awkward hug at the door. Yeah. You know, that's okay. That's okay. It doesn't need to have a, a like a complete circle. It's just, I think that's one of the things I loved about past lives. Past lives nailed that, right? Big time. Bang Past on. Past lives n- 
absolutely nailed that. It Past Lives had the confidence to stand there as a film and go, we are literally going to stand these two characters a meter away from each other and just watch we're going to like create physical subtext in between them. <laughs> you know, you sort of, it was almost like you could see them kind of like completely drawn to each other. And this was f- literal, very literal. Anyway, look, I've yammered on for ages on this. Um, in terms of the fine wine and war crime section, I feel like we, we yeah. probably should like nail this. So I might just read a little bit of this out. Please do. Yeah. So this was written by Nadia Joe, who I think, as I said earlier on, is is Korean. She wrote this in the Stanford Daily. I think she edited a couple of the the volumes of that, um, and she called the title that titled her article "The Egregious Racism Against Asians in Lost in Translation." Essentially, her argument is that it portrays Asian people as homogenous, weird, and perpetually foreign. This hackney-eyed and racist trope has implications beyond one film. It's been one of the pillars of systemic racism against Asians. The film asks viewers to categorize Japan as strange and uncomfortable to relate to the loneliness, uh, un- uncomfortable to relate to thanks to the loneliness of the protagonists, uh, and, and then essentially believes that we're encouraged to think that the main character's isolation is harmless and profound as opposed to them not looking to understand or to integrate. Um, she argues that others have cited the fact that Japanese characters are portrayed as being dumb or having a lack of empathy and sympathy. Um, and I think at the heart of her critique, there is a belief or she thinks there's an argument that this film asks people to see that the world should revolve around white Americans as mm. opposed to the white Americans are out of place in in Japan and they should be revolving around Tokyo. Um, and I think that's a totally fair critique. And I think it's one that, you having I've read a lot on this this week and there's a lot of people that make this argument and the number one thing that I have taken from seeing the different responses to the people that have made the argument is firstly that real experience is an experience that shouldn't be spoken down to or and shouldn't be questioned if someone has felt that watching this film that's of Asian descent or is Japanese and it feels as though someone is having a laugh at your very, something that's like your home, you know, in your culture, then that is a very real thing and it can't be denied. And I won't argue against it. I would just say in terms of the conversation that we had earlier on, the experience that I had when I I went to Japan was that when I set foot there, I felt like a fish out of water. I, I, I felt totally lost and totally um, like I had no idea what was going on. And I would like to think that my response to that was not to mock or to to say, well, this is too weird. It was instead to try and be like, okay, how do I get under the skin of this place? How do I understand this place? And I think perhaps that could be a valid criticism of where the film goes goes wrong, whilst at the same time reflecting on the fact that both characters know they're only there for a short period of time 
and so don't actually want to get under the skin of the place that they're in. Though we do see Scarlett Johansson take the trip to Kyoto and go and have this kind of quite lonely experience where she tries to come to terms with the with the area as well. Um, but like very, very interesting and, and valid critique, I think. Yeah, I think because, you know, I've obviously made that, that point earlier. I do want to jump in here and say it's not that I felt that the film got everything right and that the film was throughout the, you know, the entirety of it was making this kind of critique on the way Americans interact with uh, with foreign cultures, even though I, I do feel like it was that. I would say personally, I didn't read it as in like the film was making the point that Japan should bend to the whim of Americans. Um, I do think it was... Again, I do think it was more of a critique of kind of the, the ignorance of white Western people um, going into places that they're unfamiliar with. But at the same time, I definitely do see there are moments like I would say one of the moments I was most uncomfortable with watching this film are the photo shoot moments. Yeah. Um, when Bill Murray, his character kind of is elevated, kind of is shown as being able to just laugh and scoff at these Japanese directors and photographers who are clownish and seemingly stupid or I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Well, there was the, t- the TV studio bit as well, right? Yeah, lacking vision. Um, you know, what? What I don't know, why would a Japanese photographer in particular want him to hold his hand al- alongside his face while he holds the whiskey? That that whole bit felt uncomfortable and it felt ridiculous and it felt demeaning, especially to a culture like Japan that is, you know, at the forefront of many creative industries of fashion of photography in particular, you know, these kind of things that that, that they should somehow be the butt of the joke in this instance, as opposed to the washed up old borderline alcoholic actor who's out there, you know? And I don't think they made, if the point was to show, no, it was actually him that was crap at even being a photo model after being this great um, film star, I don't think that point was made clearly enough at that point. And it felt like the butt of the joke was on the Japanese people there. Similarly, um, when the sex worker is sent to his door, it's yeah. very awkward, very weird, that scene. Because again, it's not showing you that he is this kind of pervy old guy. Um The laugh is had at the expense, again, of the sex worker and of the Japanese people. So like I say, I, you know, just to, just to kind of say if anybody, if you were in anybody watching or listening felt that I was somehow being like, no, 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 no. I think this film's all fine. And I don't think there are any problematic tropes and such using this. I, I, I do think there are. Um, but I, 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 I would just question, like, I, I do think a lot of the film is about, like I say, number one, I think uh, ultimately, Tokyo is being used as a character is being used as a device to show these people being lost in a in a place in their lives right it's it's both literal and metaphorical um and i think using anywhere somebody else's culture really commodifying it in that way i guess is inherently problematic in some senses but equally 
I think the film uses this in quite a clever way. And, and I don't, I do still think it, it is used to show that these people are quite ignorant and that they are not brilliant people either, especially him. Right? Yeah. And it's self-aware. I, th- I think the film in, in the most part is self-aware. Anna Faris's character doing that gaudy karaoke. Exactly. 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 Yeah. And it really, really, and even her character, when she's talking about like, Oh, where are you shooting? Who are you shooting with? That kind of thing is, it is a critique on a lot of the BS that comes with that lifestyle. You know, not, it's not, it's not a critique of Tokyo. It's a critique of those people that then go and, uh, particularly the you look at the business people that meet Bill Murray's character you know it really pokes at them you know makes them look stupid oh we're here on business it's like you know, you stand out you know people can tell you you're here doing something you're not you walk amongst people here you're not one of them here um it, into one other thing that I wanted to really quickly because I realize I've been yammering for ages in this pod do you think we need to talk about the fact that Scarlett Johansson was 17 when she did this? Because I have seen a couple of clips where she's spoken about the idea of it being a difficult job to work on. Really? Interesting. No, please, please do do tell. Well, so she she's never outwardly criticised. She's never outwardly criticised uh, Bill Murray. She's never outwardly criticised the filmmaking I did notice that she was the only person that Sofia Coppola didn't thank in her Oscar speech. She thanked when she won for best screenplay. She said, oh, my, Bill Murray's my muse. And she thanked her team. And she didn't really thank Scarlett Johansson. Um, and there was, a, she did, it was it Girl with a Pearl Earring at the same time? Yeah. yeah. Or, or at a very similar time. And I could be completely getting this wrong, but I'm just, in terms of watching her speak about the two experiences, she lights up when talking about one and she shuts down when talking about um, Lost in Translation. And she said to Howard Stern, I think I sent you that one actually, it's worth a watch. She said to Howard Stern that it was really hard to work with Bill Murray because he was up a lot and then down a lot. And he was very very on when he was on set and she just kind of had to roll with the punches to some extent um but i do wonder whether that discomfort though it though it was probably very wrong and 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 uncomfortable for her i think i i imagine as a 17 year old feeling that level of discomfort it would come through in your performance and i actually think even though it's horrendous to say her performance is incredible mm. And I wonder to what extent that could be because she's so uncomfortable out mm. there. I think she might have had her mum out there with her at the time, but but she would have been. Imagine that as a 17-year-old kid. I mean, I can't remember the first time I went on holiday abroad on my own would have been when I was 17. I would have gone with my mates not to go and yeah, do a, yeah. a, a film shoot for three months or whatever it was. Um, and so it, it just... I wonder perhaps whether she maybe could have done with a little bit more looking after in this. Um, and then there'll be other people on, on top of that that will argue that really they shouldn't have cast a 17-year-old in 
in that role. Um, and then I think there probably is a further argument that in 2024, this probably doesn't get made with the the age difference. Mm, no, or if it did, I think it would have to be much more explicit in pointing out that this was bad. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Even, I mean, again, like in theory, the character's 24 and he's probably mid fifties. Like some people do have relationships with people that are much older than them. Yep. You know, and it's, it's one of those things. I just, I think the reason why this film works so much is because there is, what would the two generations be? It's millennials and then Gen. What would they be? Gen X. So he uh, he might oh, even be older baby. than Gen X. He might be a boomer. Maybe is yeah. it boomers before Gen X? Isn't it? Yeah, boomers then Gen X then the millennials then. Mm. Yeah. So so one of the reasons why the, for me this film works so much is because it shows these two different generations completely lost within their relative kind of era um you've got millennials probably watching this film going no one understands my loneliness and no one understands my loss of purpose and that what the hell am i supposed to do like you said earlier on we were promised one thing what we've got is another and then the baby boomers or the gen x is watching and thinking oh my god like i've outgrown my young life and no one understands my loneliness in the sense that I feel like my life's passed me by. And that's why it works so nicely that they're able to find this middle ground of, of loneliness there. Um, and perhaps if we're going to be really critical as a war crime to some extent, and I mean, we have spoken about this at length, but turning their relationship into a physical one suddenly allows a little bit of discomfort Mm. or are you not having that no i i know what you mean mate it's just it's a very tricky one it's a very it's a very it is a very difficult one um i can fit the, the i think the thing what i'm trying to say i can it, i feel comfortable watching this because i love this film but i do wonder whether there are people watching this going like i, I think she said actually sophia coppola said her kids when they watch this are like ew he's so old really yeah and that there's like teenagers watching me like, why is that old man getting with her sort of thing? Um, so there is perhaps a natural discomfort in there or an inbuilt discomfort in of us to be like, well, he's a lot older. Yeah. And I, but uh, again, I don't, I think, I think it's, I'm not saying you're doing this. I'm saying like if the, if the commentary around it now was to suggest that this was being held up as, normal when this was made in 2003 i think that's disingenuous it was always inherently seen as a bit True. weird and a bit kind of creepy that, yeah. that is kind yeah. of the whole vibe of the film yeah yeah i agree i agree and it and it and, and that's what i'm saying i think it works because of that mm. you know that that weirdness and that kind of discomfort is the it's the feeling that carries you all the way through the film and, that, and that, again, I just throw back to you, that's why I don't I don't want to repeat myself, but that's why I just think the kiss is so ill-judged. I really do. Because the moments of tenderness, like you said, her putting her head on his shoulder 
you could read that or misread that in so many ways when they have the conversation, when they're lying next to each other in bed and um, she says, does it get any easier? You know, these are like deep emotional conversations, but without any, there's no lust there. You know, it's, it's emotional intimacy. And I think there's even a moment where he like holds her ankle. Have I got that right? Something like like that. He doesn't hold her hand. He like, holds her foot or her ankle and it's almost like this really again really gray area between um a paternal or sibling brotherly thing and then also physical intimacy but all in all just i love this film i what I, I like you know i said the other day when i watched it straight away i literally watched it the next day i couldn't wait to watch it yeah um, couldn't wait to watch it it is a great um, film i do think it's a great film. i don't think it's perfect i don't think it doesn't get things wrong um but i do think it's a great film it's it's very beautifully crafted the film looks like it looks amazing it's shot so beautifully um and there's just such a there's such a tenderness. The chemistry between the two of them, despite the age difference, is amazing. Is amazing. It really is amazing. Is it, um, that's yeah, and it's just a shame to hear that maybe that came as a result of her actually not having a great time. So perhaps I need to rethink that myself. Yeah, but it is a but it is a brilliant performance. And I, this is what I mean. I come keep coming back to this point. I I um, sometimes the stars align and you just get perfection mm. or close to from a very very imperfect scenario and i wonder whether this is one of those i'd love to uh, you uh, we'll never find out but i'd love to know um do you fancy a bit of imd ball are we well mvping it jesus i nearly right. threw it away i'm gonna give this my side bill murray who are you giving it to oh funny that i'm giving it to scarlett johansson are you really yeah. uh see i was torn on this like i she is phenomenal she yeah. is absolutely phenomenal. Um, oh, one thing I will we'll just chuck into the mix very, very quickly. Scarlett Johansson said, first scene of the of the film is her backside, basically, in yeah. underwear. And she's turned away from the camera. This is a really interesting kind of fine one war crimey thing that shows why working with a female director can actually sort of just change the setup and change the whole feel. Sophia Coppola said to her, would you like me to do it first so that you can see what it will look like? And they filmed her and did the full scene with Sophia Coppola playing Scarlett Johansson's role to make sure that she'd be comfortable with it first. Now, like, imagine that in comparison to the conversation that we had the other week about Kill Bill. (laughs) (laughs) Quentin <laughs> yeah, yeah, Tarantino yeah. I'll just drive this faulty car first and make sure that it's not going to crash into a tree and then you have a crack after this well, yeah. I just thought that was a really very interesting thing go on why why are you giving it to Scarlett Johansson I just think there's a real like for, for somebody that young to put in a performance that believable um, that authentic that it just felt real it's felt so yeah. real um, whereas I do. I love Bill Murray. I really, really like him. Um, but did it feel like Bill Murray playing Bill Murray? Maybe a little bit. Um, whereas with her, it, it, she just felt believable as this disaffected, 
college graduate that had no idea where her life was going and what she wanted to do. Um, yeah, really, uh, really, yeah. I just thought it was a great performance for, for somebody so young. Um, I thought she was amazing. So this is kind of mad. She won the BAFTA for Best Actress for Lost in Translation. I don't think she was even nominated for uh, an Academy Award. Sure not. So isn't that weird? Because usually the BAFTAs are like a good, it's like a, quite a good, it's usually one of the things that you use to try and work out who's going to, yeah. who's going to win what. Um, I don't think she was even nominated. Uh, best actress. Nope. Wasn't nominated. Incredible. It's mad, isn't it? Isn't it? Absolutely crazy. And yeah, no, wasn't included in the best supporting actress. Absolutely incredible. Cold Mountain sort of did pretty well that year. Um, Have they ever been in anything together since, Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson? No, but... Um, I, I don't think so, but she directed another film with him in, didn't she? Did she? Yeah, and I was watching it earlier on and it's left my brain. If someone could comment and tell us what it was, I, I would be very much appreciative. I, I won't say it. We'll leave it as a bit of trivia. Um, should we hit up a bit of IMD ball? We will. Can I uh, can I give you a comment? Um, you can. We've, we've had one from, from last week from Hotspur NL at Hotspur NL underscore CA. Um, CA for Canada, I'm thinking that is. Ben, on last week's IMD ball, how did you not go for Goodfellas? I know. 8.7 on IMDb. I know. Best movies of all time. I know. Mm -hmm. And like, it's one of those things, isn't it, where you're probably sitting there screaming, like, come on, you idiot. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Absolutely stink. I was dreadful last week. Um, But we'll roll the theme tune now. This week, seeing as we picked out the kitchen earlier on, we're going to go for films set in a dystopian future. And I believe because you won, is it 3 1 in, in, in on aggregate? I think um, it, no, I think it's about 4 1 now, mate. 4 what Bloody hell. You can go first, sir. Take us away. But do you not want to go first? I will if you'll let me, but. <laughs> I, think, I think you should. I think you okay. should this time. Okay, well, I will start with. I'll start with a, a hefty one. I'm going to go with Blade Runner. Ah, uh, I thought you were going to go there. Um, dystopian. Let's go. I, I might just throw this one. Let's go for for Vendetta. So Blade Runner 8.1, V for Vendetta yeah. comes in at 8.2. My what? God. <laughs> Are you having a laugh? Uh, no, surely how not. Am I losing already? Surely no. No, wait, hang on. I'm doing, like, I'm doing no. stupid. I may, I I could swear V for Vendetta was like a six point something when we. Me too. What's happened? Blade Runner 8.1. V for Vendetta, 8.2. I mean, that is ridiculous. <laughs> I fucking hell. <laughs> right, okay, second one. God, I'm going to have to like really go to the bank here. I was going to save some of these for later on. I'm going to have to go for The Matrix. Ooh, nice. 
The Road. The Matrix is 8.7. The Road wow. is 7.2. Oh, okay, so one all. Feeling slightly better about myself now. I will go for next up Terminator 2. It's, it's tough because I don't know what, what things count and what don't. Do if you I feel like Terminator? You, you can veto it if you don't agree. Okay, go on. Interstellar? No, I, I, I had Interstellar down as on my list. Yeah? Terminator 2, 8.6, Interstellar. Oh, what? 8.7 how <laughs> oh, am I getting done here this is criminal Ooh. I had that on my list I had that on my freaking list okay let's go for I feel like this will have done well I will go for Children of Men Mad Max Fury Road Children of Men 2006 oh not good 7.9 Mad Max Ooh. Fury Road 8.1, well played, another, another big win, oh my god, I went first and I've absolutely blown that, how have I lost that one? It's Geneva you know, Vendetta made that as that through, honestly, I was putting V for Vendetta in there to throw that one, because I was like, I don't... You're like, I've lost it, so cool, we'll just, that is mental. Um, what other ones to, were you going to say, do you want to do, do you want to just do a couple more for fun? 2001 Space Odyssey. Oh, um, lovely jubbly. Um, I, been... oh God, I did have a really good one on the third of my fucking mind. What was it? Um, to do Hunger Games. Ooh, Hunger Games. 7.2. See, it, it, IMDb is impossible to tell. Isn't Hunger it? Games was 7.2 or yeah. 2001. What was 2001? 2001 was like an 8.3. Do you know a really a really good curveball one I was going to do was Wally. Oh, that might have done quite well. Wally. 8.3 would have been wow, a very yeah. very good one as well. Lovely um, film Wally. To perk me up, can I can I bring the music down and yeah, tell you what we're doing boy. next week? Um this would be actually I might I might do it at the end of this. This is one of those films that gets the Kill Bill siren. It's, it's a biggie, and it's the first time that we ventured into this kind of thing. Um, it is one of the greatest of all time in terms of the type of film that it all is. Right. It stars a smorgasbord of some of the finest actors of all time. And it is part of a trilogy. Okay. Shall I shall I give you some of the, the cast? Yeah, go on, give me some of the names. Give me some of the faces. Sean Bean. Orlando Bastard. Bloom. Who? Ian McKellen. Oh. And Elijah Wood. We're going to go for Lord of the Rings. <laughs> the Fellowship of the Ring. Hello. Cooey. I mean, that's brazen, isn't it? So early into 2024. No, just mate, I'm here for that. Out Lord of the Rings. And, and the thing is, what I wanted to do, if it's okay with you, I thought, which Lord of the Rings film? And then I thought, out of respect, we should probably, if we're going to do Lord of the Rings, we should do one here and it should it will have to be the first one. And then at some point, I'll leave it to you to say we're doing the two towers surprise me whenever you're ready there's no rush but i 
it's about time that we sort of got involved in one of these kind of trilogies, isn't it? And so Lord of the Rings. Do you know what's funny? Because I was really thinking about doing, I was not thinking about doing, I was thinking about just watching this film. Anyway, I was like, I haven't watched it for a couple, few years now. I think it was maybe two Christmases ago. I watched it before I knew Rings of Power was coming out. So I was yeah. like, I'm going to go back into Lord of the Rings. And I really, I've been really feeling that I want to watch. I, lo- I love watching these films. Me the, too. The, the, yeah. The, you know, all the themes of kind of the, the road less traveled, adversity. Is There's some great like. Well, there's the idea of like the different there. tribes coming together as well. Turning up to Rivendale, you know, and that like oh, wonderful man. It's, a, it's such a Joe. You know, it's a real, real happy place to me. The Lord of the Rings, the the world, or Middle Earth, you know, all of it. Like, totally. Can I'm, I ask I'm, quick I'm one a, quick question? I'm a shameless nerd about it, you know. Does that mean you'll be watching the extended edition? Do you have the Blu-ray? I do have the Blu-ray. <laughs> oh, well, there we go. I, I I will stick with the cinematic though for this one. Excellent. Yeah. Otherwise, <laughs> you'll still be watching it by the time <laughs> we get around. We'll <laughs> be alive. We'll do a live stream. Yeah, <laughs> so watch along. Yeah. Magnificent stuff. What a pleasure. Wonderful. Thanks for picking Lost in Translation. What a great film that was. Uh, and it's at BYOB Pod on social channels. Make sure you subscribe, drop us a like, get involved on YouTube, leave some comments. Bye, 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 bye. <laughs>